What did you have for breakfast this morning? Uh, I had quiche for breakfast. <laughs> what is is quiche like a uh, croissant or like a? No, it's baked egg with stuff in it. Whatever you choose, I put in. So like I an make, omelet. Uh, kind of. I make them in a pie tin, oh. and I make several of them because I have four sons, so I don't cook one of anything. <laughs> so it's like basically like it's an omelet that's got no jiggle. Hi, I'm Tim. Welcome to We're Only Human, a podcast celebrating the resiliency of the human spirit through conversations with extraordinary people. We are here to learn the skills we can use to intentionally create the life we want to live. Within these conversations lie all sorts of lessons learned, epiphany moments, and techniques to navigate the messiness of life, as shared with us by the people living through it. We're not perfect. We're not alone. We're only human. Today, I'm joined by Dr. G. She's a daughter, mother, practicing physician, and resilience expert, also a contributor to the New York Times, Washington Post, and a bunch of other media outlets. And as I was speaking about before we started recording, you're also an alumna of the Second City Theater um, in Chicago. I'm based in Chicago, so I have a bias toward Second City. It is one of the best comedy programs out there, I think, in terms of quality. And so, I think so too. It's, I mean, I don't think you can have more fun in an evening and they have the free improv set for anybody who's ever in Chicago wants to go see magic being made. It's pretty awesome. Absolutely. So speaking of, of second city, you went to undergrad for theater and then mm-hmm. you worked in theater as, was it a stage manager and a performer for six yep. years, yep. which is amazing. Like, I'm just a little jealous here. I mean, I'm so happy for you, but how much fun that must be. And that's why I'm intrigued because then at some point you say this is really fun but i kind of want to do something else and why why did you want to do something else so a couple of things happened one i accidentally peaked at 24 peaked in what way (laughs) um so in professional theater there are gigs that are just as good i think as working at second city but there's nothing better i got hired at second city about 15 years younger than the next youngest person in the touring company that I was in at the time. And then very quickly through a bunch of other people's misdeeds and really no virtue of my own, except for being in the right place at the right time, I got promoted to one of the resident stages. So here I am stage managing a resident stage at Second City. The guy who had lost the job right before me that I got it had been there 27 years. And I was like, wow, this is this is it. This is really the pinnacle of my career. I could have moved, for example, for sure, I could have gone to New York and, and looked for work on Broadway. But two things. One, here I was in this gig that was like 50 weeks a year, paid vacation, health insurance. I mean, really unheard of in theater. By this point, I'd been working professionally for several years in theater. I was in the union and theater is this really gypsy lifestyle where you've got a job and hopefully you've got the one lined up right after that, but you're also always looking for the leapfrog, the one after that. And I'd done that for, you know, like two months here and four months there and six months here and two months there and one week here. And I'd done that for a while and it was exciting and it totally works in your early twenties. Thumbs up. (laughs) But then I got hired at second city. And like I said, that guy'd been there 27 years because it's this amazing situation 
I could move laterally. I could move to, to jobs that would also be really exciting, but it was never going to be as steady as what I had as exciting in terms of creative opportunities and the people I got to work with. I mean, the early 90s and the mid 90s at Second City in my company, like the people that, that were there when I was there that I, I got to work with or work near, they're really famous now. They weren't then, but some of them are really famous now. And it was this amazing opportunity. But so one thing was like, where where does one go from here? As an ambitious, self-competitive person, where am I moving to from here? And then I thought, okay, so I'll stay here. It turns out I'm bad at staying in one place. So I did that for several seasons, but the more I realized that this was really exciting, but it didn't feel, and now actually I would look at it differently, but at the time I didn't feel like I was making a big contribution to solving the problems of the world. And I wanted to, the way I put it at the time to my friends was like, I felt like I wasn't really earning my oxygen. And now I would say people in the arts absolutely do tremendously. We need them, I think now more than ever. But at the time, I just, I wasn't feeling that what I was doing equaled the suffering that I was seeing around me. And I had volunteered as an emergency medical technician for several years after college while I was working in theater. And I really liked it. I really liked that show up when somebody really needs you. It's very dramatic. It's you get to rescue and help and then tap out, right? You like dip in, dip out, you're done. And I thought, well, maybe I want to be a paramedic. So I called some friends who were paramedics. EMTs are like entry-level ambulance workers. And paramedics uh, have a lot more medical training. They can do a lot more, put in IVs and do all these cool things. So I called some friends who are paramedics. And one of them who'd really been a mentor to me said, oh, that's so nice, Deb. You'd, you'd be a terrible paramedic. <laughs> and I was like, what? <laughs> I was crushed. And he said, yeah, you're, you're not suited for this work. You should go be a doctor. And I was like, what? That's crazy. I can't go be a doctor. I'm, you know, I'm old. I'm out of college. I didn't go to school for that. And I said, why? And he said, you were always trying to fix things. Like even when you were here, you, we would show you a procedure and you'd be like, oh, but you should do it in this other order. And why, why do this when you could do that? And you wanted all this autonomy. He's like, you were not meant to work for people. You were meant to be in charge. And I don't think he meant it in a very flattering way, but he was not necessarily wrong about my ability to be a good team player and do things because that's how I'd been told to do them. So all of those things together. And one Monday when we were dark at Second City, I called, I pulled out a phone book. I'll give people <laughs> a chance to Google that. And, uh, and I called Northwestern's Medical School. Northwestern's right there in Chicago. And I got the poor woman who answers the phone because this was before the interwebs. So I get this woman who answers the phone and I say, hey, I'm interested in applying to medical school. What's required? And she says, a bachelor's. And I say, in what? Imagining she's going to say what? Like biology, science. And she says, college. (laughs) And I was like, I totally have one of those. I do. I've got one. So I had to go back and take four classes, just four science classes. And that was it. And I could apply to med school. And I was like, yes, this is the challenge I want now. And I took as much hell from my colleagues and my boss at Second City for quitting at the end of the season, like I gave him plenty of notice, but for quitting and going to med school, as I had from my parents when I told them I was going to theater in the first place. <laughs> <laughs> Where did this need to like justify your oxygen? Like, like 
if that's the reason you left and then started on this medical journey, where did that even come from? Like, have you always felt like you are a part of this world and you need to be contributing in a valuable in your eyes way? In some ways, it was actually around the time, and this goes back, right, when people started even talking about the idea of things like carbon footprint or, and I don't only mean it from an environmental standpoint, right, yeah. but like, uh, I, you know, and I was raised in, at the edges of a religion that believes really strongly in social justice and work to repair the world. And, and we're actually taught, it is not your job to finish repairing the world, but you're not allowed to stop trying. And in the early 90s, in the theater scene, there was a lot of substance use and a lot of risky behavior. And when people engage regularly in risky behavior around their work, they tend not to treat the other people at their work incredibly well. They tend not to treat themselves incredibly well. And so as I saw that, I kept wanting to help in a different way than was appropriate for me to help in my role there. And I thought like, man, I just, I, I want to, and I got disillusioned from this idea because no one can do this. But at that time, in my naive way, I thought, I want to fix people. You mentioned that you, that your friend said you should be a doctor because you like to be in charge and maybe want to help fix things in general. That seems in contrast, though, to being on a comedy improv team where it's all about yes and and being a team player. And I mean, if I got to believe you were successful. I, I've never seen you perform improv, but I got to believe that. Second City is competitive enough where they wouldn't keep you around unless you were good at what you were doing. So there seems to be some good team playing in your you know, personality. Um, yes, but here's the thing. In that environment, you're allowed to judge the hell out of the people around you. You have to keep working with them. But if you know anything about improv, and some people who are listening might not. So that thing that you said, that it's all yes and. Yeah. There's only a couple of rules in improv theater. And one of them is you can't say no. Um, because it stops all the action. So if Tim, if you and I are playing a scene and I say, whoa, that is the biggest snail I've ever seen coming out of your nose. You can't say there's no snail coming out of my nose. <laughs> you can say, I pretend it's my mustache and I will thank you to agree with me. But you can't say there's no snail coming out of my nose. Because that just stops the action. You're not even supposed really to ask questions, right? Because then you're putting somebody on the spot. You're supposed to keep things moving forward, but you're allowed to be super judgy. You don't have to be, you don't have to agree with anybody. You just have to not cut them off the knees. <laughs> <laughs> I see. So it's, uh, yeah, it's just, in, it's very interesting. So then you end up becoming a, a doctor and that's not, I mean, it's it's really More funny. More simple, that, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's really funny that you call Northwestern, they say you just need, you know, a bachelor's degree. But I mean, being a doctor, I mean, even once you get there, that's not in my, I have no experience, but from my understanding, it's not an easy thing to do. Like this isn't an easy lifestyle. Um, was it something where kind of shifting to that lifestyle was fulfilling? Like you now felt like you were fixing, helping, you were justifying the oxygen you were taking up, no matter how much, how many hours of the day it took to do that? Yeah, there were, there were a couple of things that surprised me in terms of like how I was better prepared than I would have imagined for the experience. The worst parts of being a doctor 
are what people think of, what people are thinking of when they think about the hardest things about that lifestyle are all the TV shows you've ever seen about medical residents, people Crazy in anatomy. training, right? They've gotten their MD, they finished med school where you are a little protected. Uh, and then you get to residency where you are really the workhorses of the hospital system. And then as an attending, your life may or may not be like that. Attending physician is like who's finished residency, gotten their board certification, they're out there practicing and earning and all that and paying off med school loans and all those things. Um, and I'll tell you what, my um, I graduated from med school 20 years ago. I am still paying off med school loans. So it's not nothing. But that residency time period, it's nuts. It absolutely is. And they've tried to do some things to make it a little better. But it people would say to me all the time, because ER was very popular when I was in medical school. The TV show ER was it in its heyday when I was in med school and then residency. And people would say, is it really like that? And I would say, yes, except there's a lot less time for sex than they would lead you to believe. But everything else, it doesn't always happen in every hour, but everything else I've ever seen in a medical show, Grays or, you know, or ER, any of those, the medical stuff, yeah, and what they ask residents to do. And I found two really interesting things, one good and one bad. The good thing that really surprised me is the hours weren't worse than theater. Oh, I, so, I didn't think about that. I guess theater like, has uh, quote unquote irregular hours too. Hours. So even yeah. in my undergrad in a drama de department, I was at Carnegie Mellon and we had to be at class at seven or eight or nine, depending on the day. And we didn't get finished with our obligations. Like our, you must be here at this time. I don't mean your homework, but our rehearsal and performances and build crews and painting until 11 p.m. And then you went to do your homework. So we were working and it was at least six days a week that we were doing that. So when I got to medical school and they said, well, you're going to have to do this. The stuff I had to do was different, but the hours were not worse. So that helped. Like my stamina yeah. was there. Yeah. The things that surprised me I had never been in a group of people that was so profoundly conservative in their views about everything. I was going like, to say about anything in particular. So just general so worldviews. Politically, I, you know, I'd come from this very liberal world and bubble, um, but not just politically. You know, um, <laughs> there was not one single that's what she said joke in my entire first year of med school. I was so confused by that. <laughs> You know, in theater, if you said something like, lay it down right there, half a dozen people would be like, that's what she said. Right? I mean, it just, yeah. just as an example, right? There was sexual innuendo everywhere and everything. And the first couple of times that I made those jokes in med school, I just got these blank or horrified, to be fair, horrified looks from people. So I learned to shut up and just look around when people said things like that. And nobody was even like trying to catch someone's eye to like snort. I mean, nothing. So I was surprised by the conservative, more modest, more discreet. And I'm not saying those things are bad. They were just shocking to me. Um, and, and the other thing that I was really surprised by is how little people like to speak in front of a group. Um, so for everybody who's listening, who's ever had an experience with a doctor where they, they were really smart, but they didn't have good bedside manner. Imagine that doctor lecturing 150 people about something complicated. Are you asleep yet? <laughs> <laughs> because we struggled. I had one classmate who now 
is a super famous plastic surgeon, but she used to wear, no matter what the weather, these thick sweatshirts and pull them down over her hand so that when she propped up her chin, it would catch the drool. So <laughs> when she fell asleep, like... <laughs> it was that bad. It was that. She was not wrong. <laughs> she was just a creative problem solver. Did that frustrate you? Um, not, it not was her, unbelievable. Like the fact I mean, that people couldn't <sighs> speak to groups? It was so it was dreadful. It turned out to be a real professional opportunity for me, but I didn't know that it would be at the time. They broke us up a lot into these small groups where they would give us a problem to solve. And then they would ask us to come back and have one person from the group speak in front of everyone to explain what your group came up with. 150 people, maybe 10 small groups. And no matter how they broke us up or who I was with, every single time I ended up being the person to get up and explain what we had done. And at some point, I started to feel guilty. I was like, you guys, somebody else can have a turn. And eventually, someone explained to me that they would all rather have a root canal without anesthesia. (laughs) And I was like, oh, because I came from this world where you would throw your grandmother under the bus to speak in front of 10 people, let alone 150. So this idea that being able to get up on stage and speak in front of a group of people, despite the fact that I had done it in a really prestigious place with really amazing people, I hadn't realized how rare it was. Um, and that was a really good career growth opportunity for me once I realized that if you were both a doctor and could speak English and also could occasionally make people laugh, the world could be your oyster. And then that's when you thought, hmm, I got something going here, maybe. Mm, yeah. <laughs> Mr. Kata, Mr. Kata, I have an idea. Yeah, totally. So it seems like, I mean, you are very um, energetic and charismatic, charismatic, that's not even a word, charismatic person. And I could see where like being on stage at Second City, I, I think you would be great. And I'm wondering like, where did that come from? Like, cause, cause this shines now. I, I imagine what you're doing now. I know you went to like summer camp and stuff. Was, was any of that formative in terms of, cause I'm sure being around other kids and, and through, you know, a summer long or however long you were there a week. The very best thing my parents ever did for me was oh, having yeah? a summer camp because, so I'm an only child and I'm an only child raised at a time where most kids had a stay at home parent, had a stay at home mom specifically. My mom was ahead of the curve professionally, and she worked 60 hours a week. She became, uh, she got her educational doctorate, worked in the school district. Like my parents both worked full time. So I was a latchkey kid down to the white rope string around my neck with the key. I mean, really, quite literally, a latchkey kid. And a little bit of it came from entertaining adults. Um, you know, I wouldn't get sent out of the grown up dinner conversation, not just with my parents, but any guests they might have or anywhere we might be if I was entertaining. And I was precocious. So I got a lot of positive feedback for being precocious, but I had zero idea how to relate to anybody my age, partially because I was an only child, but partially because we moved after first grade, second grade, and third grade, we moved cities and schools. So like I was in a new school in kindergarten, in second grade, in third grade, in fourth grade, and in sixth grade. And So I knew how to be very flexible and make new surface friends, but I had no idea how to go deep with people my age. And then my parents sent me to overnight camp. And first of all, I had to share anything with anyone and, you know, 11 other girls, 11 other 10 year old, 11 year old girls. And I learned a whole bunch. um, And some of it was really hard, 
but I learned a whole bunch about what I could do and also what you shouldn't do. Do you have siblings, Tim? I do. I have two. So siblings give you a lot of feedback on the noises you make and the faces you make and what you think is funny and what you wear and all that. And it's not always kind, but it is usually dead on accurate. And I had had none of that. So then I get to the summer camp. I get a whole bunch of feedback. It was really hard. But also they had things like talent show and skit night and a stand-up comedy activity you could go to and learn and singing and all this stuff. And I was like in the group in the cabin socially, I had no idea. I would pick up a book and read and hide behind my book. But when I was forced to get up on stage, not forced, but like when I had the opportunity to get up on stage, I felt like I could have interactions with people with a sense of control. So you took what you were doing at the dinner table with the adults and now you could do it in front of whoever. And I'm sure it was dreadful. I've now, you know, since I've been a counselor at lots of camps, but specifically at a theater camp for several years. And we used to call the talent show the camper no talent marathon because, (laughs) oh my gosh. But I got to practice on people and I really liked it. What was your most memorable moment from performing on stage at camp? Oh, I decided I was going to do a stand-up comedy set. Had you prepared and, anything or was it just oh, kind yeah, of... Oh, yeah, yeah. No, okay. no, I mean, you had to, you had to audition. Oh, and big, okay. big air quotes around the audition because you were only auditioning to make sure you weren't going to do something so foul that they couldn't allow it because they said no to no one that stayed within the rules, right? So I had to practice it. So yeah, I knew I was going to do it. Um, But they let me sort of, well, what I would now call mark through the performance. I was like, you know, I'm going to tell a joke about tennis and then I'm going to tell a joke about it. But I didn't tell the jokes at practice. So I get up on stage and I start, I tell a joke and it goes nowhere. I mean, I'm an 11 year old, awkward, uncomfortable girl with a microphone in my hand and you're trapped there for three or four minutes. And I got the, I got the reception from my peers that I probably deserved and Then I said, okay, can I at least get a counselor to laugh? And people laughed at that. And then I was like, oh, I mean, I even got a counselor to laugh at me during tennis. I don't think they were supposed to laugh at me then because I just kept whiffing the ball and I like started doing hand motions and now people are laughing and it was okay that they were laughing at me because I wanted them to, right? I was, it was on purpose. And that moment felt like a real light bulb moment for me. Oh my gosh. I could just see your face lighting up. Was that kind of when you thought, oh, I really enjoy this. Yeah. Like I felt like as long as I'm controlling the narrative, then it doesn't bother me to have people laugh at something that I did because I can laugh at it too. And I think what I really learned in that moment was the ability to laugh at myself because up until then, I mean, my, my grownups had always taken me very seriously. I was a very special person who was bound for very special things and no one should ever laugh at me ever. Right. And I don't think my parents thought I was a precious snowflake or anything. They just didn't have anybody else. And they thought I was pretty cool, but I had ended up, um, super arrogant, you know, and like an arrogant 11 year old, Right? I mean, arrogant anyone, but yeah. like an 11 year old has no, no filters on that at all. And so understanding that channeling that arrogance into allowing people to laugh at me instead of guarding against it all the time. That was really useful. 
an arrogant 11 year old my son just turned 10 so i'm i'm i, I don't think he's too arrogant but i'm picturing if he was like completely that would be bad <laughs> yeah and you try to be like buddy this is not going to go well like we love you but socially you're setting yes. yourself up for pain here exactly <laughs> and i have four kids of my own and you have i find myself i don't know if you do wondering sometimes like siblings give a lot of feedback but some of what you need from your parents is just support boundaries for sure rules and guidance and all that stuff but the uh hey you kind of sound like a pig when you laugh that's not great from your parents that can be kind of scarring you know yeah that's <laughs> a good point that's a very good point yeah. i so, did by the way kind of sound like a pig when i laughed so yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you you attended um best decision or best decision your parents made they send you to summer camp and you love for it sure. but then eventually you become a counselor was that just oh, also I should be honest, I hated it the first year because you hated camp I, the first year? I hated camp. I had no idea how to get along with people. I was I mean, I even remember a counselor pulling me aside and being like, Debbie, if you you know, if you're having a good time, that's cool. But if you want more friends, you have to stop correcting their vocabulary. And I was like, Why? And she's like, <laughs> It's annoying. I mean, you're kind of annoying. Now people might be horrified that my counselor said that she was all of 17 or 18 years old, probably, but it was super useful. I was like, it's annoying. And she's like, oh yeah. I was like, oh, okay. I'll, I'll consider that. You know, and, and it wasn't like, I won't do it anymore. It was just like, I will consider if what they're saying is so wrong that I don't mind being annoying. Or if I don't, <laughs> it was like, I'll count that in my calculations. <laughs> I got home from camp with my parents said, and it was four weeks of overnight camp. And my parents said, how was it? And I was like, I hated it. And I didn't this didn't like it. And I didn't like that. And I didn't like that. And my mom used to tell the story. My mom, a blessed memory, she passed away some time ago. But she used to tell the story of saying to me, so you're not going back, huh? And my dad was pleased because he really missed me. And it was super expensive and all that. And I was like, oh, no, I'm going back. I'm going to show those people I can figure it out. It became like this puzzle I wanted to solve. And I went back for seven more years. My next summer, I had a good time. And then I had a better time every year. I was going to say, if it was that bad, why did you go back? But it was the challenge. That's so yeah. funny. And then eventually, so you become a counselor. I don't know if it was at the same camp, but was that just from your love of this? Like you decided, I want to cross the other side now? If I had known in college that people could work in the camp profession their whole lives, like as a real job, I would have never gone into theater. I would have never gone to medical school. Like I would have made summer camp my profession. Oh, but wow. I didn't know that. I thought it was just a summer job. Um, I So I was a day camp counselor, a bunch in high school, kind of a minimum wage. Like I like playing with kids. I always babysat. I wanted to have eight children of my own. As an only child, I always completely over-dramatized and fantasized big families. And I went to college in a, in theater and we were supposed to work in theater over the summer. I ended up working in a day camp in the in Pittsburgh, which is where I came to go to college. But it wasn't until the summer before, right after I graduated that I got my first job at an overnight theater camp. It was while I was waiting to hear from the theaters I'd applied to in Chicago, including Second City, if I'd gotten a job. And a boy I liked was working at that theater camp. He'd grown up going there and said, you should come and work with me. And it's the best job ever. I mean, honestly, if you can afford the terrible, terrible wages, being a summer camp counselor, it's the best parts of being a camper 
and none of the worst parts of being a camper. <laughs> That's so funny. Is there this sense of like, and maybe this is a parent me coming out, but I feel like there'd be this immense weight and sense of responsibility for all these kids that you're in charge of. Like, No, because I wasn't worried about them. I enjoyed them. And so like, you know what it is? Um, are you an uncle by any chance? I'm not. Okay. Well, so no, I do am. Your... Okay. <laughs> Whoops. You might want to edit that out in case anybody in the family listens. But when that being an uncle is all the fun of being a parent without that weight of responsibility, right? You get to play with them and enjoy them. And they call and you're like, yeah, hey, how's it going? You can throw them up in the air. And they're like, can we have 17 cotton candies? And you're like, why the heck not? Right? Like, <laughs> it's all that fun. Well, there's this great article in the New York Times Sunday, long, long time ago about summer camp. This guy, Michael Thompson, who's written some great books, including Homesick and Happy, about how a lot of the formative experiences that adults remember from childhood happened when our parents were not around. And he wrote this article for the New York Times saying, and I can't remember what it's called, but it's about sending your kid to summer camp. And it's basically why a 19-year-old can get your child to do all the dangerous, annoying, difficult things that you can't bring yourself to make them do. Oh, that relationship, that near peer mentoring relationship. And now full disclosure, I lecture in the camp world a lot. I actually just earlier today gave a keynote for foundations of Jewish camp. When we, when we put kids, young adults yeah. who are somewhere between three and 10 years older than their campers in charge of them, they do a fantastic job. The kids do great. And for the most part, it doesn't stress the counselors out because they have faith in these kids. It doesn't occur to them that the kids wouldn't be able to let them know if they didn't feel well or try canoeing for the first time or get to the top of the rock wall or sweep the cabin. And so they just they just do it. They're like, we got to do that so we can get to the fun. Come on, get it done. And the kids go, all right. <laughs> <laughs> I can see that. I would imagine there's a lot of like, oh, I was just this age not that long ago. So I completely understand where this kid's at and where they're coming from. And I feel like I can help them. Yeah. That makes a lot and of sense. And if I can't help them, I don't take their upset as seriously. Like, I care, but they're going to be okay. And it doesn't reflect on me as a parent because I'm not their parent. Yeah. One thing I've learned as a parent is kids are so resilient. I mean, at every age, it seems so far. I got now you're singing. Now you're singing my song. Yeah. So you do all this work nowadays with resilience. And I'm, I'm curious because... I mean, I, I feel like I've learned recently just how resilient kids are and therefore thinking more about it, how humans are. Where did you get into that? I mean, when did you start singing that song? Was there something early on in your life where you sort of started to realize how resilient we all are? Uh, no, it really. So I guess the first thing that happened is my parents raised me with an expectation that I would act resiliently, right? That um, oh. in every situation that I would either solve it or ask for help. And um, they were for, for that time, meaning for those decades, they were pretty good at empathy, my mom especially, but they just had an expectation of problem solving and they didn't ever jump in to fix something for me. Even if I asked for help, their answer was, well, what have you tried so far that hasn't worked? You know, talk me through your process. Let me see if I can help you over whatever the obstacle is that's keeping you from solving this. But that idea that I was self-sufficient or gonna be they took that so for granted. Now, my parents are both first generation American. They were raised by immigrants. And I think that was a part of it for them. Um, and then 
I had a truly, I very rarely have this, but I had a truly epiphany moment at, at work as a physician, as a doctor, that made me realize how crucial resilience is. And um, and I can tell the story if we have time. Sure, um, sure. Okay. So here I was, I'd been a, a, an attending physician. Remember I said that's after you're done with residency, board certified, everything, working on my own at a federally qualified health center. So seeing people with without insurance and with bad insurance and everybody. And I walk into a room, I'd been there already a couple of years to see a patient of mine who had progressive MS. It's a rare type of multiple sclerosis where unlike with usual MS, where you'll recover some when you have a flare up, when people with progressive MS have a flare, however bad it gets, that's where they stay. It doesn't, they don't get back to baseline. That's terrible. Yeah. This particular woman who was in her mid fifties, she was, she's, um, she was a white woman with a college education, sort of middle-class socioeconomically speaking. And she was at that point, uh, depending entirely on a wheelchair. She used a toggle at her chin to move the wheelchair because she couldn't rely on anything from her shoulders down, really. And I walk into the room to see her and I say, how you doing today? And she says, wonderful. And I said, tell me what's going on. And she said, oh, you know, my roses by my front door are coming up and my grandbaby turned one and he's getting to be so big. And I'm going to the first Friday concert this weekend in the park and I'm really looking forward to it. And we went on and had our visit and I didn't think a thing of it except that a few patients later that same morning, I walked back into that same exam room and a different patient, same race, same age, about same socioeconomic and educational status in her chart. And I've also known her for a couple of years in her chart is only some mild occasional low back pain. And I walk in and I say, Hey, Miss so-and-so, how you doing today? And she said, terrible. And I said, tell me what's going on. And she said, well, it's just that nobody understands and my family and my work, they don't think about my back and they don't accommodate me. And I said, is your pain much worse? And she looked at me kind of surprised and she said, no, but it could be. And I went on to help her as best I could, but I couldn't help thinking, how do I get my kids to grow up behind door number one and not door number two? What is that difference? And it was right around the same time that I was recognizing that as amazing as I thought it would be as a doctor to fix people. And I do think that listening is important. And I do think that diagnosing is important. And I do think that treating is important. None of that's the most important thing. The most important thing is people's innate resilience. So I started thinking like, okay, we have this whole idea in our society that resilience, you get what you get. You know, you were born with the color hair that you've got and you could dye it, but it's still, this is the color hair you got. And you were born and Tim, you might not be old enough to remember this, but when I was in elementary school, kids got put in a reading group. And by the way, if you were in the low reading group, they called it the low reading group. And if you were in the high reading group, they called it the high reading group or the smart kids reading group. (laughs) And whatever group you were in, in kindergarten or first grade, that's where you tracked all the way through. They never retested you. They never questioned unless what you were doing really didn't match the expectations. That's who you were and who I was going to be because we had a fixed mindset about intelligence. But being a parent now of kids in elementary school, you know that we have an understanding that intelligence is a growth commodity. So we can, the more kids learn and practice, they can grow in their aptitude and their ability to do math or science or athleticism or music or whatever it is. And yet as a society, when I started reading more about it, I realized we still had a very fixed mindset about resilience. We had this idea 
that some people are just born resilient, they can handle whatever comes at them. And some people are, and you may have heard this word or used it yourself, sensitive. Mm, I feel like that word has been all around. Used a lot. And that idea that you're just, well, you know, he's just sensitive is a way of saying that they're never going to be resilient. When I speak in front of educators, I will often say, when my youngest son was six, we found out that he has dyslexia. And so since then, we've done everything we can to protect him from ever having to learn to read. No, we did not do that. <laughs> you look for what <laughs> Wait people's for the faces educators say. to like reach for their pitchforks, right? That's a great example, though. And I say, hey, we did not do that. I said, I know you're all mandated reporters, but you can chill out because we got him tutors and a program and we read with him every night and got his older brothers to read to him and he reads really pretty well and he's working on it. He will always be dyslexic, but he's really working on it because when somebody has a disability in reading, we say, hey, literacy is really important. We got to find a way. Well, I would argue, and I hope that my mom of blessed memory wouldn't spin in her grave because she was a reading specialist. I would argue that resilience is every bit as important as literacy. And yet, when people, kids or adults, struggle, we don't say, wow, okay, how can we teach this and how can we support them and how can we get them to grow in their resilience? We say, oh. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but resilience, I've come to learn, and I've been doing this for nine years now, reading in this and, and researching in this and speaking about this and developing tools. Resilience isn't a character trait. It's a series of actions. I saw it. I think it was in a your like demo speaking reel. You had this quote that said 72 small disappointments build resilience. And that blew my mind because I very much share this idea that a lot of points, you know, it's like three points make a line, right? The more points this happens, yeah. the more we learn the pattern and we accept this and we become this. But 72, I mean, that's a lot. <laughs> it is. But when you think about 72 small disappointments, I mean, how many kids do you have? I have two. And do you remember their toddler years? Oh, I was just talking about this with someone the other day. I said, if you have kids, like take pictures and all the videos and everything, because I feel like I'm starting to forget. They're 10 and six. And I feel like my daughter who's six, I can remember more. But my son, I feel like I'm, I remember more of his, you know, grade school years now. Okay. But when your daughter was like three and, or four, because I don't want to talk about choking hazards, but four years old and you were someplace where somebody was making balloon animals or blowing up. Did you hate the balloon as a parent? No, no. Did their other parent hate the balloon? No, not that I recall. What's going to happen? Guaranteed. What's going to happen with the balloon? Let's go get it. It's going to either pop. Yeah. Blow away. Best case, it deflates, right? It's like disappointment yes. on a ribbon. Yeah. There's no question. So when you think about those kind of disappointments, um, the TV show that they wanted to get to watch after dinner, there isn't time because oh, they need a bath. When you think about uh, they don't get to have the blue cup because it's in the sink and you've got stuff crusted on there you haven't been able to get off yet. Or you ran out of the bath soap that, you know, like the soap bubbles they really wanted. Or they, you know, like they're throwing the why my toddler is crying memes that are like, you know, I wouldn't let them touch <laughs> I wouldn't let them lick the third rail on the subway, those kind of things. So those kinds of disappointments, you can see how at that age, every single one of them, they think 
the world has actually ended. Like, how are you still standing there? I am melting down because life as we know it cannot possibly go on. And then at some point later, they're doing something they enjoy. And parents are often really hesitant to do this because they don't want to remind them about the upset. But if you were to say, boy, I'm proud of how resilient you're being because I know you were really upset about the balloon and you might even still be upset about the balloon and not but, and you're finding a way to have fun with our dog. I'm really proud of you. That's resilient. Those learning moments add up to that really accurate line that you're talking about. I see that. So it's it all I can see now where 72 would easily come with those small examples. I'm even thinking Listen, the other. You can have seven, a, a toddler, a toddler who's working at it could have 72 disappointments before lunch. We, exactly. I was thinking the other day, like my daughter wanted <laughs> to go to the park and we didn't have any time. Left. We had to leave soon. We didn't have enough time. I said, we'll do it next time. And it was totally a small disappointment for her. But I think and to me, part of it, too, is once because I've noticed this myself, even at you know the age I am now, once you experience that disappointment and then you realize, you know, either next time it's better or you survived, like you said, or I've moved on. Once you realize there is a path forward, even after the disappointment, to me, that's where like it starts to come together. Like, oh, I'm strong enough to to defeat that next time or to stand up to that next time or I can experience it next time without falling apart. But it takes a lot more than 72 times to remember that when you're in it. Because as adults, we know feelings change over time. Yeah. Um, that often the next morning things do look better, even though that's so annoying to be reminded of when you're right in the middle of it. And not, not that I'm suggesting we should say, oh, don't be, don't feel this or do feel that because your feelings are yours. But that to remind yourself, okay, I have ever felt this ashamed before or this sad before or this worried before. And eventually I didn't feel that way. That takes a lot of repetition to learn that. But every time you learn it, you make that muscle a little bit stronger. I actually have, and people are welcome to grab it. It's free. It's a two-minute video on my site where I go through what I call the resilience cycle, where whenever we experience a change, any change, a change we wanted or didn't, a change we predicted or didn't, we experience actually loss and distrust and discomfort. That all sucks. And then as soon as we remember that we still have choices, even if we don't like any of the choices, but we do have some choices. Then we pick one and we start to engage. And now we're acting in a resilient way. And even if a little piece of us is still back in loss or over in distrust or thinking about the discomfort, if our big game piece is moving into choice and engagement, we are acting in a resilient way. And we're getting through that change in a way that will make us more of the kind of person we mean to be. That's what resilience is. For people, it's not about bouncing back because people are always changed by our experiences. It's about incorporating that change and becoming more of the kind of person you want to be. What what fulfills you about this sort of work, like resilience? Why, why focus so much time, nine years, on this topic? Because this is something anyone can do. There, it's not to say that privilege doesn't play a role because it does in everything. And it's not to sure. say that affluence doesn't play a role or education doesn't play a role because it does make everything easier. But anyone at any point in their life, no matter what they've been through, if this is the very first time they're facing really big pain or the 400th time and the other times they uh, handled it by using meth or, um, you know, or screaming at people or whatever, you know, whatever negative coping mechanisms at any point, anyone can choose to act resiliently. And so, okay, 
do an exercise with me. Tim, think back to 2015. So your kids are one and six. Is that right? Uh, five years ago? One and five. I think, one and yeah. five. So yeah. five years ago, it's the end of summer, beginning wow. of the school year. Maybe your son is just starting kindergarten. Um, whatever was going on in your life that September. And I'm not going to ask you what it was, but think about what was whatever was your like, and I'm a doctor. So on a pain scale of one to 10, <laughs> 10 being the worst pain you can imagine. Think about whatever the stressor was that was like a nine or a 10 in your life, September, five years ago. You got it in your head? I think so. Yeah. Okay. If, if the pandemic hadn't happened, if whatever you know difficulties we're all facing as a society right now, were not in play. If you were facing that stressor this September, on a scale of one to 10, how bad would it be? Uh, it wouldn't be that bad. Give I it mean, a number. Oh God. I don't know. Maybe a three. And it's not because it wasn't a big deal. It's because you've trained up like an athlete who can run five miles now because they started out running a half a mile barely and they trained up. You've trained your resilience up. Some of it we do just by living life. And a little bit of it, research shows about 20 to 40% is actually genetic and nurture and how you were raised. But 60 to 80% of it is on you. And if you do it with a little bit of intention, just like the difference between walking to work and actually training to run five miles, with a little bit of intention, you can get to a point where the things that used to stress you out don't bug you. We have this narrative in society that stress is inherently toxic and that we should do everything we can to avoid it and ourselves and, and avoid it in the yeah. people we love or the people we work with. And that's shenanigans. Stress is a tool. And like any tool, you can bash yourself with it and really get hurt. But if you use it well, you can build what you want to build. It, it really is like not the scapegoat, but I mean, stress is billed as this stress reliever, right? Stress relief. Right. Like, stress management. You got to yeah. avoid stress. Get and rid if, of it. If, yeah. if your wife, if your partner came to you or someone you work with came to you and said, Tim, you're stressing me out, your inclination would be to fix something or to apologize. Uh, but if you were stressing them out because you needed them to fill out the document that would get your taxes in so you wouldn't get fined, you'd be like, good. Is it done yet? Yeah. <laughs> Stressing you out is my goal right now. Um, because stress is a tool and you can get damaged by it. You know, just like exercise. If I tried to get up tomorrow and run an Ironman triathlon, I could legitimately die. I'm not ready. Um, in that same way, if I had too much stress all at once, I could be really damaged by it. But if I want to someday run an Ironman, I need to train up. We're all training up. And if we can find out how to do stress better, I'm working on my, my next. TED Talk is called Do Stress Better, because if we can do stress better, we can learn to manage it in a way that it doesn't feel painful. It's useful. It's kind of your exercise example that reminds me of like, so it's almost as if you're, I mean, like, um, I think about, I love biking. And the other weekend I did a like 51 mile ride and by, I, I was kind of going nonstop and by mile 35 or so, which I do regularly, I, I was starting to feel it in my legs. And by the time I got back to the car after the bike ride was over, my legs were like jello. And it was just like, you know, it, it's sort of like that, just, you know, really, I guess, painful, sore, right? 
And it's almost yeah. like you're, you know, the, the equivalent there is like the stress in our lives is sort of like that. Like that's only going to make those legs and my body stronger in the long run. Oh yeah. I mean, I, I think that the analogy works well because for me, because I don't enjoy exercising. I love to have exercised, but actually exercising is something that often is really hard. And the advantage to stress, is like, you don't have to go looking for it. You know, yeah. with exercise, I have to choose to do it. And that's where I get tripped up and where a lot of people get tripped up with physical exercise. But Me with too. stress, you don't, you, don't need to, you don't need to fabricate it. It will find you. So here's an advantage. As it finds you, if you can use it in a way that you're using it more efficiently, you're using it better, you're using it for what you want to accomplish. And a year from now, the stuff that feels like a stressor now, won't even, you won't even notice it. You won't even call it a stressor. It'll just be a thing that has to get dealt with. That's really a big advantage. That is. So when you made that switch and kind of went into the medical field, it was that feeling of, I need to, you know, I need to fulfill my purpose and help people and really be a force of, of good on this planet. Do you feel like that's still your guiding light or is it evolved? I mean, I'm sure that was a few years ago. You know, you've had a chance now to be a doctor and do all this work. Has it changed? It is still my purpose, but I am less impressed with me, right? I, I'm less certain of my omnipotence and my ability to fix other people. I think that there's a lot of good that I can do, but it's, it's mostly by helping people express what they need to express and connecting them to strategies that I'm lucky enough to be aware of, right? So connecting them to medicines that I know about, I get to do that. Connecting them to therapies that I know about, I get to do that. But really it's asking really good questions and helping people ask themselves the right questions and feel safe enough to answer honestly. Less impressed with yourself. That is not yeah. something I saw coming. So, wow. So wait, because you obviously are making an impact, like the feedback, you wouldn't be where you are today if you weren't making a positive impact. Like, it's just not the way the world works. But is it a case of like, you thought you would have maybe a more direct impact or a different kind of impact? And you've realized it's I thought I could fix people, right? Like that I would just like, I would meet you and I'd be like, okay, Tim, here's what you need to do. And you'd be like, oh, thank you, Dr. T. And you would go do it. Okay. Yeah, people don't work like that. And- that's the like, you can fish for a day or fish for a lifetime, right? Yeah. Um, if I can give you permission to really express what you really feel and what's really bothering you and ask you really good questions, sometimes there's like a diagnostic puzzle and you'll be like, you know, hey, I've had this itchy patch on my neck for like the last five years and I can't figure it out. And, you know, and like, we'll talk and talk and talk and talk. And I'll be like, hey, I think maybe actually you're having an allergic reaction to your partner's drool that sleeps with their head right on your shoulder and you're like oh right and like you know you fix that and now your itchy patch goes away cool that's something i did maybe but in general most of the time what i'm doing is asking good questions listening to the answers and then saying so i hear you saying this is that right and you go like yeah and say and i think it might be connected to this thing over there is that right and you say no or you say yes and so that like that my role is so much more to reflect back your experience and your knowledge and find ways to tie things together for you so we can figure out how to give you more of the life you're looking for. And I mean that in a very health sense, not just in a like, I don't know, metaphysical way. Yeah. 
But also the work that I get to do from the stage and in my books and all that is about trying to ask really good questions and then turn the lens just a little and help you look at something you're already an expert about, you, your work team, your kids, your relationship in a slightly new way and have you be like, oh, yes, I do. I, I am an expert in this, but I hadn't looked at it from that angle. It's almost like you wanted to be a genie who could just point your finger and fix people, but you ended up almost like a de- detective, like you're helping figure out the clues and the questions, but it's not as simple yeah. as just clicking your fingers and it's all good to go. But it also reflects how people saw medicine in the 90s when I was looking at, you know, thinking about going into it, which is yeah. very parental. And like you went to a doctor and they told you what you had to do and you pretended you were going to do it until you left and you never went back to them. <laughs> um, as opposed accurate. to now where we really understand that your doctor is hopefully a respected expert member of your team, but they're just a member of your team. You know, I'm an expert in lots of different behavior change strategies. You're an expert in you, your family, your business, your industry, your work partner, whatever it is you know what might and might not work. I've always thought that doctors, and I don't mean this in a demeaning way, but doctors are very experienced, educated guessers. Yeah. Like they are, they have more education, more experience, more knowledge than I do, but they are still guessing. Now, hopefully their odds of being right are better, but like expecting them. And like you said, I think we do expect them to be genies almost. And maybe that's just an unfair expectation. That changed about 110 years ago with the advent of antibiotics. Uh, Because I was just saying this to someone recently, up until antibiotics, doctors were there to maybe relieve symptoms and tell you about how long you'd probably live. Oof. Right? Like to bring comfort and a little bit of prognosticating. But we didn't cure much. We couldn't do surgery and we couldn't fix infection. We didn't even know, like, you know, in, in 1898, when my med school started, I I always, we always joke, like, how did they have four years of med school? They didn't even know you were supposed to wash your hands. Like, (laughs) (laughs) what did they teach? They basically taught anatomy for a couple of years and then sent you out to apprentice. And now we still teach things for a couple of years and then send you out to apprentice. But with the advent of antibiotics, which allowed, and anesthesia, which allowed surgery and chemotherapy, we got this idea as a society that doctors should always be able to fix everything. When very much like your car mechanic, we can fix some stuff, but every car is going to die eventually. (laughs) I like that way. That's an interesting way to put it. (laughs) So, yeah, I think I'm just still taken aback by what you said about I'm less impressed with myself than I I thought I would be. Um, It just seems like a very demoralizing place to be in, but you don't, you feel like you know where you're going. So did you just kind of overcome that and accept it or? No, it doesn't. To me, it doesn't feel demoralizing. It took off a lot of the pressure. Oh, Um, I see. Right. I don't, I'm not failing anybody when I can't fix them because nobody can fix anybody else, but I can focus on what I can do better, which is to ask better questions, listen better to the answers reflect them and give the, give the strategies that I have to offer in ways that people can actually hear and how to build trust with people. Like I can, I can focus on doing those things better because even if my patient expects me to be able to fix them, um, I I know that I almost never can. Yeah. It's almost like you had unrealistic expectations and you realized, wait a second, I'm doing amazing things here the way it is. Like, why did I? It might be like that difference we talked about between a camp counselor and a parent. 
Yeah. Yeah, yeah. it might be. Well, yeah, like I, I think most things are going to be okay. And if they can't, I'm going to do my best to be really helpful, but we're going to do what we can do. And um, turns out that me getting super anxious about it and trying to be really controlling doesn't make me a better daughter or mom. Like you mentioned at the beginning, it doesn't make me a better doctor um, that listening, always listening makes me a better at whatever I'm trying to do. Absolutely. Dr. G, thank you so much for taking the time today. This has been fantastic and I really appreciate it. Thank you for asking such good questions. It's really fun. Thanks for listening to We're Only Human. Before you go, I would love to know what you had for breakfast this morning. Just send me an email, tim at we'reonlyhumanpodcast.com and let me know what you had for breakfast this morning. Thanks.